Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers discuss legal news, events, topics, stories, and, well, whatever the heck else pops in our heads. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft, Statinius, and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is Jennifer Byrne, the director of the Young Lawyers section of the Chicago Bar Association. Hi, Jen. Hi, John. So this is the love and divorce edition. Uh, you know, Jen, I have to admit, as I was reviewing the show notes this morning, I was really trying to come up with some kind of clever Jane Austen or Leo Tolstoy play on words with the episode title, but I couldn't come up with anything, just that pretty lame and dated married with children reference. So apologies, everybody, for that. No worries. It gets the job done. Yeah, well, kind of. Anyway, speaking of failures, we are here today to talk about divorce. Now, not all of us have been divorced. Heck, I've never been married, but many of our listeners are divorced or we know someone close who has been divorced. And it seems that many of my friends, like you, Jen, are often chatting about celebrity divorces and the scandals that they seemingly inevitably ensue. So we thought it would be fun and possibly educational to talk divorce with two of the leading domestic relations divorce lawyers in Chicago, our home base. Uh, joining Jen and me today is Miles Bierman, one of the founding partners of Bierman, Pritikin, Mirabelli, and Swerdoff, and Kimberly Cook, a partner with the firm Schiller, DeCanto, and Fleck. Miles, hello. Kimberly, hello. Thanks for coming in today. Hi, John. Hi. How are? How is everybody? Thanks for inviting us. Well, thank you. Uh, Jen, you and I know Miles and Kimberly by their sterling reputations, but for those of our listening audience uh, who don't yet know them, uh, will you fill us in? Yeah, of course. Um, Miles Bierman is regarded one, one of the preeminent practitioners in the field of family law. And having practiced in domestic relations for a while myself, I can say he's a well-known name in the area. His achievements and qualifications have run the gamut from being in every edition of the book, The Best Lawyers in America, um, to being honored by the Illinois chapter of American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. And in 2002, was, be, was the recipient of the Samuel Berger Award, which we all know in the family law arena is a great honor. And for the listeners out there, you can read more about Miles and his bio on the page. And then also, Kimberly Cook works for um, Schiller, DeCanto, and Fleck. She's a partner there. And Kimberly's family law practice is um, informed by an intimate understanding of the needs, challenges, and family dynamics of her contemporaries. She has a number of qualifications and publications herself, all of which are listed in her bio on the page as well. So welcome, Kim and Miles. Thank you very much, Jennifer. So, Miles Kimberly, I don't practice family law aside from occasionally handing an appeal that uh, that deals with family law, but offering only partially substantiated opinions is, I think, a strong suit of mine. Um, so I thought it might be fun just to pick your brains uh, about some of the broader trends that we're seeing in uh, divorce rates across the country. And it seems to me that in this age that we're in of uh, swiping right and left, ghosting and submarining and a lot of other millennial dating terms I'm probably forgetting. Um, it's often said that uh, love has become a commodity. Marriage rates uh, are dropping. Divorce rates are, as always, high. Um, but when Jen and I took a closer look at the numbers, the actual figures, we found some interesting facts. And I, I'm curious to get your opinions on some of these. Uh, for instance, recent articles in Time and Bloomberg uh, have discussed how the marriage rates which were declining for decades, as I understand it, uh, are actually beginning to stabilize and divorce rates have dropped to their lowest point in 40 years. Maybe bad for business, but probably a good thing you know, for society. Uh, young people, it turns out, as unreliable as we supposedly are, uh, are divorcing uh, considerably less uh, than we were in the past. The divorce rate for adults aged 25 to 39 fell from 30 per 1,000 married persons in 1990 to 24. Uh, in 2015. So back of the napkin, that's a 20% decline um, in a, f a few number of years. Yeah, I have my own ideas about why that might be the case, but you know, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not an expert. You guys are. Why do you think we're seeing those trends? Well, you know, I think there's a couple of things. First, yes, I think you touch on this fact that um, you have millennials or, or younger individuals who tend to be getting married later. Um, and by later, we're talking, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And by that point in time, there is some establishment in career. Um, and I think a little bit more stability in their overall life. Mm -hmm. And so at the time that they're looking to get married, it, it's more of a conscious decision than say, you know, 
just graduated from college or I'm very young right out of you know high school. This is who I grew up with. This is who I know. Let's get married and let's just do it. So I, I, I definitely think, um, you know, we're seeing that that is uh, that's one of I hate to call marriage a trend, but but the turn um, used as it relates to getting married later. Um, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, a lot of times with these statistics, though, they're a bit skewed because they don't necessarily parse out first-time marriages. A lot of times they'll throw in, you know, marriage as a whole, but in that you're dealing with people who've been married before. And so th- there tends to be kind of a, um, it's a, it's a disconnect between whether someone has been married once or now twice. And so that, that shifts your percentages. What we're seeing though, it's pretty consistent that, um, you know, marriages are lasting, um, longer, that people are uh, coming into marriage either, you know, after um, kind of getting to a place where they feel like they're ready. But certainly for our business, we also, though, see, you know, divorces and, and recognizing that the divorce rate, you know, seems to be consistent. Um, and while we don't necessarily celebrate that, I think Miles and I would, would both agree that, you know, our job is to kind of help somebody during that transition or during that dif- difficult time. Um, and so I think that's what we see on our side, that by the time someone gets to our office, that they have kind of work through this process and it's not a shoot from the hip, let's just be done type of thing. Sure. So if I if I hear you correctly on the first part of what you were saying, uh, millennials now may be a little bit more established, more stable when they make that decision. Yes. And maybe because of that, uh, you know, they're fully adults by the time they're in their late 20s, whereas I remember in my mid-20s, I definitely would not None call myself an, ad- <laughs> yeah, yes. an adult yet. Uh, maybe they're being a little bit more choosy because of that. Like you said, they're not just marrying the person, their high school sweetheart, sure. for example. Yeah, I, you know, they're either they've traveled a little bit or they've, they're in a job, they feel, uh, you know, stable, they may have purchased their own home. Um, and so by the time you're, you know, again, late 20s, early 30s, chances are you're at a place where your next thought is, I'm ready to now make this step. I'm financially in a good place. Um, and, and now is the good time to, you know, kind of expand into, you know, kind of a family. So then marriage. Sure. Miles, have you found that to be the case? Well, I'm not big on these statistics, to tell no. you the truth. Uh, I think that the uh, the drop in the divorce rate uh, impacts younger lawyers who are either on their own or in a small firm where they're not getting the high-profile, high-money cases that Kimberly and I get. Mm-hmm. And so I've always, uh, people say to me, how come you haven't retired by now? I'm in the 60th year of my practice. Wow. And and I tell them, I still think it's an epidemic. The divorce is an epidemic. It's going on. I just finished a case a few months ago. They were octogenarians, people in their 80s getting divorced. And so the reasons that people got divorced and are getting divorced, I think, haven't changed. Uh, I agree with Kimberly because I see it in my own family. Uh, my oldest son, who's a law professor and 60 years old, he didn't get, he didn't get married till he was 35. That makes so me feel a lot better. My contemporaries have great-grandchildren, and I only have grandchildren because they haven't gotten old enough yet to have children or get married, actually. None of them are married. So uh, I still think that there's an epidemic going on. And I do agree, though, that people are not getting married as young as they did before. It, it seems that boomers are getting, I know you said you don't put a lot of stock in the statistics, but the statistics that Jen and I were reviewing suggested that baby boomers are getting divorced at a much higher rate uh, than their parents did and then than millennials are. Uh, one in four uh, baby boomers um, in the last, what, I think it was 15 years, Jen, right. had got a divorce. Right, which actually doesn't seem inconsistent with kind of what you were saying, Kimberly, about people's marriages lasting longer, but that doesn't mean they're not also still ending. Sure. You know, the other thing we have to keep in mind, though, is, you know, look, divorce comes with a number of things that people have to consider at the time they're going to be divorced, right? So, you know, they're not only kind of the emotional, but there are the financial implications. And so, you know, when we think about you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, when you have, if you do kind of the um, typical, right, scenario where dad is the breadwinner, mom maybe stay at home and, you know, a few children, for her to get a, a divorce 
was really financially devastating because now while laws have changed now and that's because uh, of people like Miles who have, you know, kind of championed uh, the writing of certain statutes and, and laws that it, that impact our everyday lives when we're looking at divorce for for a woman or, or even, you know, a man years ago to um, to divorce, they would have to look at a number of factors. And a lot of people, it was just better to stay married. You know, one of the things that a lot of people don't think about even today, you know, when you're getting a divorce, your spouse if they were carrying you on their health insurance, they can no longer carry you. You have to obtain your own. And if you're someone who has serious medical issues or if your health insurance is something that's going to be financially devastating based on what your income is, that's a real consideration. And so while that may not be reason enough to stay married, I can tell you a lot of people think about, look, maybe it's better for me to just kind of hang on. So it is not um, surprising that you're seeing people who are, you know, say baby boomers who have either reached a level of financial security saying, okay, now I feel comfortable or their kids are out of the house. And so the thought is, I don't have to worry about, you know, the support of my children. And now I can kind of take that that next step. So, you know, that, that statistic, really a lot of it has to do with the place by which someone is in their life that really allows them, so to speak, to, to even consider a, a divorce because of the financial impact. That makes a lot of sense. And like you said, maybe some of these millennials just haven't had enough time being married to get divorced. There's that. Right? Yeah, they haven't learned to hate each other yet. Well, John, <laughs> let me make this clear. The uh, My problem, if, if it's a problem with statistics, is how it affects the practice of law. Mm-hmm. It's one, you know, and I don't disagree with anything that uh, Kimberly said about the statistics and the statistics that you showed, because those are statistics that we know about. But how it, how it affects the practice of law, somebody getting out of law school, do they want to become a family law lawyer? You know, when I was in law school at DePaul, I believe there were three women in the whole school. And one of them worked there. She became a student. Wow. Uh, and, and now, when I finished teaching, and it's about seven, eight years ago, probably 80% of my students were women. It's all different. And of course, when you're teaching a family law course, women... It was, I think, and Kimberly will tell me if I'm right or wrong, it it was a more comfortable practice for a woman to be in family law than other asset, you know, other facets of the law. Why is that? I just think that they're 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 more comfortable doing that kind of stuff, Um, and I think they're patient, and uh, they don't get roared up like men do. (laughs) And it's and really, I'm I'm serious. I I see it. Uh, you know, we, we've got some wonderful uh, family law lawyers who are female, and they've made a terrific career out of it. And I think that they're just as good as the male lawyers, if not better. And you see them going into that field more and more, and that's why I saw them in my classes. Well, we have two uh, women at this table who went into family law. Yep. Uh, Jen, Kimberly, why did you do it? Why did you choose this area of the law? Oh, gosh. You know, it, it actually kind of fell in my lap. So I um, went to the Catholic University of America for law school. And so it wasn't as if, you know, divorce was kind of the area by which, you know, they, they were, they were uh, they you know, pushing closer? us. There, there, there's family law, but okay. uh, it's, it's certainly very different. But that being said, you know, um, my exposure, I, I uh, was a judicial intern for a judge whose wife happened to be a divorce attorney. And... Um, you know, and watching her and, and kind of speaking with him as to what I was looking to do after law school, it just kind of ticked off and checked off a number of boxes for me. Um, and so then I, I interned with a firm in D.C. Um, that did uh, divorce, and it just it, it really clicked. But I would agree with Miles that I think that when people think of kind of family law as an umbrella, a lot of times the first thought is, you know, I want to help with children or I want to help, you know, women and children. Um, and so there's kind of a tendency when you think of, of family law, because it's such a huge umbrella sure. um, that um, when you're in law school, depending on the classes that you take, I mean, you know, it can run the gamut from kind of divorce to adoption to like domestic violence and while all of those things are intermingled under under family law depending on kind of your firm or or what your practice area is so for example my firm we don't do any adoption work um 
Whereas, you know, there may be another family firm that, that actually does. So oh, I, I think that's that. the, um, you know, the interest that people then tend to, if they're interested in family as an umbrella, mm-hmm. it really kind of follows what their, what their interests may be aligned. Jen, I don't know if that's... I actually went to DePaul and I didn't take a class with Miles, but I did take a class with a professor named Jane Rutherford. And she's the reason that I went into family law. I really liked her and I really enjoyed her class. And similar to Kimberly, I felt that it ticked off a number of boxes. I wanted to litigate. Um, I don't think people necessarily realize this, but as a family lawyer, if you pick the right opportunities and the right firm, you're in the courtroom right away, which is something that I wanted um, and I got the opportunity to do. And also I wanted to have direct client interaction immediately. I didn't want to um, be in a situation where I was waiting for five to seven years to get into a courtroom and start working directly with clients. So that was my attraction to it. But I think that's different maybe than why women might be particularly well suited in some cases for the area, which goes back to what Miles was saying. I think it goes back to, you know, strengths and weaknesses. Oftentimes, you know, get all the gender stereotypes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's not, I'm not trying to be stereotypical. I think that to some degree, you know, people do have different strengths and weaknesses. And, um, you know, a lot of women feel, you know, I think are empathetic. And I actually worked for a firm that was all women for a period of time. And there were people who specifically called asking for a female lawyer because they wanted men and women would would call asking for this because they wanted someone that they felt would actually listen more intently, I suppose, to the issues that they were going through. It's not to say that men are not empathetic, but I think the stereotype and in some cases the reality is that women women do provide that um, source of empathy for the client, which can be a huge strength in the area. Well, we have something in common because if it wasn't for Jane Rutherford, I don't know that I would have ever taught at DePaul. I took over her night class and uh, she was still teaching during the day and I took the night class. So, so there you go. Yeah, small <laughs> world. Yeah. So I think that um, let's go there where you were just talking about, Jen. I think it's an interesting pivot. Uh, it's always seemed to me from speaking with my friends who are in family law uh, like Jen uh, that it is a particularly um, emotionally taxing area of the law to practice in. You know, in, in my practice as an appellate lawyer, I mostly deal with uh, other lawyers or general counsel. Uh, for our law student listeners who may be thinking about a career in family law, what are your what are the ups and downs, the pros and cons? The pros are that you just hit on it, John. The most lawyers don't want to deal with family law issues. So most of our business, I think, if we really looked at it, comes from other lawyers, lawyers in big firms like yours, lawyers in medium-sized firms, even lawyers in small firms. Uh, and so they, they don't, it's, it's very taxing emotionally, mm-hmm. and you have to be on an even keel. Otherwise, you're, you're getting involved with them and their emotions, and that's not doing their case any good. And it's certainly not doing you any good in the courtroom. I've seen lawyers who, you know, blew their stack in front of a judge, insulted the judge, uh, did things like that only because they were putting on a show for the client because they thought the client wanted to see that. I was in a, what Kimberly and I do when we have a settlement conference, it's called a four-way conference, okay? That's our abbreviation for it. And I remember being in a four-way conference one time when my opponent uh, went after my uh, my partner who was part of the, it was a five-way conference. There were two of us and one of him and the two clients, and they started swearing at each other. And my client, who was the wife, got very upset because it got very tense in the room. It almost looked like maybe they were going to start slugging it out. You know, so so these this is where we get our business from, and we get a lot of business. And, of course, I, I suppose... The other part of it is we get it from hopefully satisfied clients. Mm. You know, everybody wants to know, well, who was your divorce lawyer? You know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, on the business side of things, people will always be getting married and divorced. So in an era when litigation is shrinking just about everywhere, that would probably always be a boom industry, right? That's the epidemic, John. That's the That epidemic. I spoke about before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I actually want to return to that uh, epidemic comment in a moment. But Kimberly, have what yeah, do you think? I, I, sure. I would, you know, speak to... Uh, sh- pros, you're helping someone d- during a difficult time. 
right? And I and I think that um, you know, to me, that is what's rewarding. Um, to really, there is there is such a difference between meeting someone in a consultation and seeing them through their their divorce, um, the growth that you see in, in people um, and really kind of, it's kind of like seeing a child off, child off to kindergarten. You know, it's, we've worked through this process and now there you go. Yeah. Um, and that's, that can be a very good, a, a good feeling. Now getting from A to Z is not always easy. I, I will say, and that can be very difficult um, as a practitioner. So sure you have to, if this is an area that you're interested in, you have to know going in, it, it's a tough job and it's a tough job because you know, look, you are you are helping people in a time that is very difficult in their lives, and and they are not you are not meeting them at their best. And so, you know, I have seen uh, former clients two three years later, and they are completely different people from when, of course, I, I knew them or met them. And so, you have to kind of take that for what it is, um, and that can be that can be stressful and difficult. The law is also stressful and difficult, right? And so, you know, um, as we as practitioners always know, you can be right and you can go in and the judge says, I don't see it that way, right? And and so that that in and of itself, but I think that's just being a practitioner any anyway. Um, but certainly this is not an area um, I think that you come into uh, lightly. It's something that you you know you think you really have to think through because it is while it's a great practice area um it can be it can be difficult and it can be very challenging um one clients and then you know opposing counsel it is it can be a very intense um you know practice area that that not everybody is is well suited for this is an interesting point uh john because you're an appellate lawyer so you know that you've got two things going on in an appeal, one of two. You've either got an abuse of discretion or something's against the manifest weight of the evidence. We don't really see manifest weight as much as we see discretion. Mm. I started out in family law as an appellate lawyer, and the the uh, what, what Kimberly is, is really driving at is that it's very, very difficult to do what a lawyer is supposed to do in representing a client. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to predict the result and then give them advice based on the, re on the result we predict. And how do you predict the result? You summon up your educational background, your expertise, all of your experience. And then you run into a judge who might abuse the discretion that, and the statute, the Illinois Marriage and Dissolution of Marriage Act, gives the judge tremendous discretion. So you've got to, it seems to me, when I get a new client in the office, I tell him or her, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do our best to predict the result. And every once in a while, and I'm sure Kimberly has experienced this, clients will say to you, you mean to tell me that's the law? They don't want to believe it. Yeah. You know, for example, infidelity really is almost meaningless in Illinois and probably in every other state. Most now. states are no-fault states now, right? right? And uh, and so you tell them, well, infidelity could you know be involved if there's a custody dispute and somebody's not taking care of their children correctly, but otherwise you're not going to get any less money or more money whether you're unfaithful or you're the faithful one. And they say that doesn't seem fair, right? Right, yeah. right. and it it doesn't seem like it is. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned before in your opening remarks, Tolstoy. What would we call this? War and peace. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree with Miles that one of the biggest challenges that I saw was the perception or the, I guess, misconceptions that people have before they walk into your office are so great. Um, and the lawyer's job suddenly becomes now having to debunk so many of those thoughts and myths, the infidelity one being probably the primary example. But it happens a lot just in terms of, I mean, I left practice a few years ago, so I know the laws have changed. but what do I have to pay in child support? What am I going to have to pay in maintenance to my ex? And so just bridging that gap between what the law is and what people think is quote unquote right or fair, I thought was one of the bigger challenges. I could not agree more. I mean, that is, um, that's a huge challenge. What's also a challenge. Um, and I think we'll touch on a little bit later. Um, 
Google, social media, um, those are all big challenges because everybody is a resident expert. So, you know, whereas maybe years ago, um, it wasn't easy to type in, you know, Illinois maintenance, right? And now you type that in and all of these hits come up. And so I spent a lot of time saying, yes, I see that that's what you read. However, what the law actually says or what this actually means Or you get a lot of, well, my friend's divorce in California, and and it becomes, again, I understand, I recognize, but, and so we do, that is a a challenge. Um, And as a practitioner, it's um, balancing the, you know, yes, I support you, I will advocate for you, but let me also explain, you know, what, as much as I can predict kind of the result based on these various factors. So there are a lot of aspects to that counseling relationship that we were speaking about before. It's not just making someone feel better, it's helping them to understand the law um, and the fact that you know outcomes in a courtroom can always be unpredictable. That is the only reliable thing that it's gonna be unpredictable. Right, <laughs> right. the only certainty is uncertainty. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I, I wanna get back to that comment, Miles, that you made before about uh, divorce being an epidemic. When you when you use that word, it occurred to me that, well, epidemics deal with diseases. Diseases have cures. Uh, do you think there's any cure to this epidemic of divorce? Well, that's a great question, John. You know, when I guess I'm using the word epidemic in a very broad sense because it seems that everywhere you go, people are getting divorced. Uh, even though maybe the statistics say not as many people are getting divorced, but you know, in what we do, Kimberly and I, you know, these people are coming into our office and uh, we're hiring more and more people to take care of them. Um, the cure, uh, that's, a, that's really a tough one because what we've tried to do is handle these cases in the, in the sort of the lightweight way. You know, we do a lot of mediation now mm-hmm. and we can also do arbitration and um, is that just because it's more economical? Or? Well, it's 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 a gentler way of doing it. One of my partners, uh, I call her the queen of collaborative law, which is where they really get sit down and they don't go to court until the end of the uh, of the deal. Now, uh, Kimberly's uh, senior partner Don Schiller and I have had a number of cases where we did our best, and they were high high profile cases, almost as high profile as you can get. And we would, we would try and negotiate the case and not go to court until we were ready to prove up the case and mm-hmm. get the people divorced. And we wouldn't get involved with uh, uh, any ad- advertisements for ourselves, any uh, public relations or anything like that, uh, because at our stage of the practice, we don't need it anymore. You know, people are still coming in. When I, what I do, if I see somebody who maybe is on the brink of getting divorced or isn't sure or maybe you could save their marriage, it's one of the great things that happens is if you can save somebody's marriage. But there's a lot of lawyers that aren't interested in that. They're just sure. interested in making the fees. So uh, There is a perverse incentive there. Yeah, and the, and the fact of the matter is that the, that the best lawyers are the ones that have the reputation in the community of being a gentle person and maybe a tiger in the courtroom. Mm. But the courtroom is the last place you should be. So if you try to stop people from getting into into court and maybe even filing, and a lot of people will tell you, well, that's against your own best interest. I don't feel that way. You know, there's there's always another, the, the next case. And so uh, I remember uh, one case where there was some cash being hidden by the husband and we found the cash we represented the wife, and uh, some months went by, and we all the cash was being escrowed with the lawyers, and it was a sizable amount in those days. And we were in the middle of uh, either a deposition or some kind of a conference in my conference room, and the people told us to leave. They wanted to talk. And that's happened to me several times. And the next thing we knew, they, they, got re- they reconciled, and they got back together again. Now, does it happen often? No, not often enough. But you have to be careful that you're not just looking out for yourself as a lawyer and 
stopping anybody from doing that or going to your client and saying, hey, you know what? He's a bad guy. Don't go back with him. You have no business doing that. Yeah. So and I think probably with those Tolstoy-esque words of wisdom, <laughs> yeah. it's a good place for us to take a quick break. Okay. <laughs> Need a lawyer? Steve? I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash LRS. Welcome back, everyone. It's Jen here, and I think um, after that really great, riveting conversation with Miles and Kimberly about just sort of divorce facts and what it's like to practice in the area, I thought we'd kind of have a little bit of fun with this, yeah, <laughs> with this next, <laughs> next segment and talk about a couple celebrity divorces that a lot of our listeners may have followed or at least heard about. They at least probably know the names. Um, the first that I'm hoping to ask you guys a little bit about are, is the Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt case. And obviously both of you were not involved in those cases, so you're not commenting on the cases from the standpoint of actually having represented these parties. And even if you had, if you had, you wouldn't be able to talk about it. But um, just from a purely hypothetical standpoint, since there were, I thought, some pretty hot kind of, I guess, common or as common as as can be in such high net worth, high profile cases, issues that came up, I thought we could kind of use their case as a springboard for some for some conversations. We talked a little bit about infidelity during the first segment, Miles. You brought that up as being a major misconception. When the Pitcholi case was first filed, I remember hearing in the media and in the tabloids and everything there was some, you know, gossip swirling around that Brad Pitt may have been having an affair with his co-star and and you know she denied those rumors and so forth but um you know just to touch back on that a little bit what are your thoughts on how often you see clients walking into your office thinking that infidelity is going to play a role and you know does it play a role and to what extent because i think a lot of our listeners probably don't really know sure well you know um for those of us who are into like you know, celebrity news. Uh, this, of course, allegation comes as, I don't want to say no surprise, but, you know, uh, certainly this is his second marriage, or is it, I think it might even be his third with uh, Jolie. He was uh, previously with Jennifer Aniston. And, and of course, there was um, the uh, marriage that resulted with these two came out of the allegation that he was having an affair on Jennifer Aniston. And so, um, you know, here is the, the funny thing about um infidelity um I love that sentence. is yeah <laughs> is, is that you know most clients who come in and either they have had an affair or or their spouse it's the first thing that they want to talk about right and you know it becomes a so if they're the person who has had you know, the affair or stepped outside of the marriage, it's a real huge weight. It's kind of the, I need to tell you something. Um, and, you know, I am, I'm concerned about how this will impact it because if I don't tell you, it'll come up. Here's the thing. In Illinois, we're a no-fault state. And while, as Miles, you know, touched on, while it is important because it's important to your overall life, Judges are not going to use that as a swaying, right? So it doesn't become the um, – it, it, there's a balance, let me say that. There's a balance with, with the, the infidelity. Certainly if there are children, you know, the, the facts and circumstances kind of surrounding, you know, were you bringing strangers into the home, you know? And, and by strangers, we're not talking about, say, the neighbor that you may have been having an affair with. That's very different than saying, you know, you're soliciting uh, individuals off of Craigslist and you're running them through the house, okay? Th those take two different turns, especially when you're when dealing with children. When we're talking about the money that was spent on the extramarital affair, sure, those things come into play when we are looking at an overall, you know, marital estate and, 
what we call dissipation, right? Funds that were used, marital funds that were used for a non-marital purpose. Those things come into play. But one of the things that we really talk to clients a lot about, I know that I do, is I get it. It's very important and it's an emotional tie. And And that's a huge thing for a lot of clients. But on the legal side, it's, it may not result in the result that you actually think it's going to do. At the same time, though, it, I, judges are human. It's not just a question of figuring out, you know, putting, putting figures into a calculator for dissipation and, you know, hiding assets and that kind of thing. And, it, you know, a, a figure pops out the other end. If a judge has the impression, I imagine, uh, that someone is just a bad guy, uh, you know, because perhaps, you know, that he's soliciting, let's say, prostitutes. Won't that affect the judge's thinking to a certain extent? I don't want to get too much into the philosophy of, uh, you know, judicial decision making. (laughs) But uh, I imagine while I take your point, um, and I think it's well made, that that isn't uh, a baked in part of the law. It seems almost inevitable that a judge will, in the back of his or her mind, consider it when when exercising that discretion uh, that Miles was talking about earlier. Anything is up for consideration at the time of trial, right? So, you know, you certainly put on the evidence, the circumstances that prompted the affair. And, and you know, when we talk about kind of Angelina and, and Brad, I think it was kind of couched in the, you know, issues as it related to the children and kind of what was going on. Where was he? Where was his headspace at, you know, say during his uh, when he's supposed to be with the kids? So, yeah, you know, depending on the facts and circumstances, the, the, the issue, though, is explaining to a client that that may not be the end all be all. So um, a lot of times people come in thinking because my spouse cheated on me. I'm going to get the lion's share of the marital estate or I'm, you know, absolutely going to get, you know, X amount in spousal support. And what we have to kind of explain is, look, it is something that we can bring out if we get to trial and we will look at all of the factors involved. So sure, sure, the court can take it into consideration, but because Illinois is a no-fault state, it is not the nail in the coffin, so to speak, of I've got a winner here because my husband or my wife cheated on me. I see. Well, the question, though, is, and John, you being the appellate lawyer, is it even admissible? And what will happen if you really go into the facts of the affair? uh, Now, roundabout, you can get it probably into evidence on the dissipation issue. But if you have an idea that this is going to come up as a trial lawyer, you're going to file a motion to eliminate and try right. to stop it from ever getting on the record. So you, you've got that going. Which is uh, why timely objections are important. You bet. You bet. <laughs> and, you know, I can tell you, uh, I had a very hot case a few years ago, and the marriage was really over. The guy comes to see me. He's referred to me by his son-in-law, and he comes to see me. And he brings his girlfriend with, his brand new girlfriend, or maybe she wasn't so brand new, you know. <laughs> and I said, listen, she can't come in, you know, and we all know why the, you know, as good lawyers, we know that if there's a third party in the room, right. you break the confidentiality. So we've had that situation. And uh, I should have known right then and there that this case that got really tough was the woman, the wife was the jilted woman. You know, she was the woman scorned. And she couldn't get over it. So for Kimberly or myself to explain to a prospective client, it's really not going to mean anything unless he spent money, you know, serious money on this woman or vice versa. You're not going to get anywhere with it. And then the question is, you're you're the appellate guy. You're going to try and get rid of that in your brief. Um, The other thing is what, what I've seen down through the years Worst cases are when uh, the husband, and it's always been the husband, don't ask me why, uh, has, has had an affair with his wife's real good friend. Oh, you know, And then that, those cases never settle. No. All the things that I told you before about much. trying it's to put a lid, it's just too much. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of those cases that I had where that was, those were the underlying facts, they were fighting about every little thing you could fight over. Because she, they just she, wanted to fight. Right. Imagine. She yes. wanted to fight. He tried to defend himself. He was indefensible, really. But 
they spent way too much money on lawyers. And then there was another case where I had where I had a fairly it was a high, fairly high profile case. The husband was a judge in a different county, and uh, there was a sexually transmitted disease in the case, and the judge here wouldn't allow me to plead it. And it, it's actually uh, in those days it was a grounds for divorce. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, I don't know that it is anymore. I don't think it is. In fact, I don't think there are any grounds anymore. That. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, have, you have the reluctance of judges to really get down and dirty. They don't want to hear that, you know. And, of course, if they do start hanging their head on the infidelity, then a good appellate lawyer like you, John, will get rid of that, you know, on appeal. So uh, explaining that to a prospective client is the tough part. Let's let's dive into that a little bit. What's that process look like? I've I've obviously never been in one of those meetings when someone comes in and they're yelling or they're crying about the infidelity of their spouse. How do you sit them down and say, "I get it. It doesn't matter." Oh, it's a gentle art uh, because you know here's here's the thing: when people come into our office, they are essentially naked. Right. You, you are coming to tell someone everything about you. When you go to a doctor, they know your medical history. They don't know your finances. When you go to your banker, they know your finances, but they don't know what's going on in your bedroom. You come into a divorce attorney for a consultation with a divorce attorney. We know everything and we need to know everything to help you through this situation. And so, you know, in that first meeting and someone is, you know, devastated or in the scenario where, you know, a wife or a husband, whoever says, you know, my spouse is having an affair with my best friend or my child's kindergarten teacher. Now is not the time to say, oh, well, judge isn't going to care. You let them get it out because it was hard enough for them to get to your office, to get off the elevator, to then tell a stranger this very personal thing. So you let them get it out, and then you start slowly talking about kind of the process of divorce, and you know you touch on, I think, some general concepts, and then you slowly start to kind of move through, okay, you know, there is two. There are two ways to get a divorce: trial or settlement, right? And you kind of walk down those, and and you, so you 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 get to a point where you can almost read the room, and are they ready to hear or not those things that you need to say as it relates to their case? But most of the time, in that first consult, you, it's an hour, maybe an hour and a half. You don't get to the look. I get it, but nobody's going to care, you know, because you'll never get a client. But you're not dishonest. But I, but I, you, you, it's in those situations when you've got like those very emotional, and usually that comes with the uh, when there's been an affair. You're dealing with kit gloves because again, it is very difficult. And and I don't admire anyone who is coming into into my office, or certainly I'm sure Miles would say the same thing, and sharing that kind of information, whether there's been an affair or not, to, to come into uh, a, a, a divorce lawyer's office, that's that's a big that's a big step for anybody. And so I think it's a part of our job as counselors is to walk them through not only the process, but to be mindful and recognize, okay, what's important to my client and, and what um, you know, what's gonna help them move through this process. And I, I will say I have had cases where Infidelity has been a big issue. And I recognize that my client was not going to, quote, get past it, right? And maybe it was there was the affair, you know, happened in the house or maybe, you know, um, at uh, some place that they frequented. And so a part of the overall settlement might be, listen, we're selling the house because it was important to her. Like that was the physical manifestation of where all of this transpired. So there are ways to make, you know, someone okay, so to speak, with what has happened, but you you don't get there in the first 15, 20, you know, minutes, even an hour of them coming to talk to you. It's a, it's a difficult thing. And some are not as forthcoming, I found too. Every client is different. Um, I mean, I didn't do it as long as Miles or Kimberly, but um, I found that sometimes there were people who 
would literally only answer the questions that you had in front on your mandatory intake form and then drop a bombshell halfway through the case. Like, how did you not think this was a relevant piece of information to share? And that's, I think, natural, too, because it's very private personal information. And they're looking at you like you're a professional that they're paying. And some of them are going to, you know, have more of that counselor, therapist type of take on the relationship. And others are thinking, I want to get in and out and I don't want to give them any more information than they need to run up my bill or make the case go on longer. I'm just going to give them what I absolutely need to right now. And then, oops, three months in, a piece of information comes out and you're like, whoa. (laughs) I agree with Jennifer, you know, but I'm very clear in my consultations. I don't like surprises. So let's all be on the same page. There's nothing you could say to me that is, as we said in here in a consult, that, you know, it's going to have me kind of running out. I've heard a lot of things. I've seen a lot of things. But I'd rather you tell me now before I, I hear it in a courtroom because now we've got a big problem. If you tell me now, I can address it. I can figure out how we deal with it. But if you don't disclose it and then, I'm, you know, I get dropped with an emergency motion or we're in a courtroom and the first time, you know, someone references an issue, now we've we've got a problem because I can't properly deal with it at that point in time. So I agree with you. A lot of people do try to play cute and coy about, oh, this is not an issue or don't bring it up. But I, I make a point we got to talk about everything and anything, whether you think it's not relevant or not. You got to let me know, and I'll decide whether it is or not. Well, what Jennifer is describing really is that you have to be extremely patient as the lawyer. You have to let them. I mean, I've been in uh, initial consults where the the quote client, he, he's a prospective client or she's a prospective client. They might go on for an hour, an hour and a half, and and you know, you're you're maybe taking a few notes and trying to listen to what they're saying and you've got to sit there and and take it all in it's how we get business you know so that in family law that word counselor takes on a special meaning it seems well you know we're also unfortunately uh you know we we don't try to be but we're amateur psychologists sure it happens all the time and then you know, I had a case one time years ago where I represented a woman who uh, the, the uh, conditions in her home were terrible. And she had a couple of young children. And I had to tell her to give up her children. And I persuaded her to do it, that it was in the best interest of her children. And I made it very clear to her that if she didn't listen to me, I was going to withdraw as her lawyer. Now, you know, it's, it's one thing to zealously represent your client as the canons of ethics tell us we have to do. But you can't stand by and see uh, children in in really terrible danger. Listen, look what's just happened in this country with all these people that stood by while this guy Harvey Weinstein was doing what he was doing, you know. And now they're all, you know, well, I should have said something. Well, when when did the switch turn on that you learned that you should have said something, you know? That's a great um, kind of transition to, and and even with this Brad Pitt and Angelina, this issue of um, domestic violence, because I think as a part of our job is to say, you are in a bad situation and you need to get out of this situation. And whether you follow our advice or not, I think that it is our responsibility to advise clients based on not just the law, but if we are, as their lawyer, recognizing that they themselves or their children are in situations that are um, detrimental to their you know, physical, mental, emotional well-being, that we have to say something, we have to do something about that. Um, and, you know, certainly not to take it lightly. Um, you know, there are a lot of lawyers who will run into court on anything and, you know, slap the word emergency in front of it. Um, and, you know, that's certainly very unfortunate because what happens is now you've got a court system that's inundated with things that are not emergencies. And when there are real emergencies, and real emergencies certainly deal with, um, you know, allegations or instances of domestic violence. And I think that as a part of our job, um, we certainly see that there is a huge misconception that domestic violence does not impact 
attract wealthy individuals, um, and that could not be further from the truth. It it is, um, you know, not a uh, limited to certain socioeconomic levels, um, but certainly. We, as I think lawyers, cannot stand by and, and see things happening or people in situations without having the responsibility to say something, to do something about it, and to try to help people in that in that transition. And like I said, I, I bring that up because I know that one of the allegations... Right. In the um, Jolie and Pitt case, and actually the other case that I was going to talk about a little bit was the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case. But in Pitt and Jolie's case, um, Angelina Jolie filed emergency motions relating to allegations of abuse towards one of the children that allegedly occurred on the party's private plane. Eventually, Brad Pitt was cleared of wrongdoing, but for a period of time, his visitation was um, supervised with the kids, and he was subject to random drug testing because there were also allegations that he was using various illegal substances in front of the children, and it was impacting his parenting. How common are those types of situations that you see, and what type of an impact can that have on a case? Unfortunately, it's all too common. Um, you know, with prescription drugs, with alcohol, um, you know, those things really come into play, um, especially when you have um, children. Um, and so, you know, those are those are the kinds of allegations that you have to take very seriously. And, and you really have to talk to your clients about whether they are the person suffering suffering from the addiction. And you have to be honest. And, and you know, as, as Miles just spoke to, if you have the client who is, um, you know, either suffering from some sort of addiction or is, um, you know, the domestic violence perpetrator, you know, there is nothing wrong with saying to a person, look, for the best interest of your children, you need to get help. So whether that's you go to a program or we get you into, um, you know, some sort of facility, I think that's a part of our job. It's not to just get a buck and let this family kind of go down the same road. So we do. We see it all the time. And and they're, those are difficult conversations to have. It's not easy telling someone that you're an alcoholic, you have two young children, and we can't go into court today asking for all of this additional parenting time because you can barely keep your head up in my office. That's a difficult conversation to have, but it's one that you have to have. I think it's it's our uh, ethical responsibility, and I think that just as a human being and, and you know and in knowing, look, this is the right thing to do because this is a family here. That I think that's a huge part. It's a huge part of our job. Do you ever have a reporting obligation if it turns out that you're representing an abuser? You know, I, I know the general rules of ethics in terms of uh, coming forward when you think that your client represents a, uh, a danger to him or herself or others. Uh, what about in that situation? What is there ever a time when you have to pick up the phone and call the police on your own client? I've never run into that, John. But uh, in picking up what Kimberly was talking about, I had a case some years ago, a fellow comes to see me, he had three daughters, and he was a recovering drug addict, and he had just gone through rehab uh, out of state. This was an Illinois case. And uh, so I'm questioning him, and he became my client, and I had asked him about custodial issues. And he told me that uh, his wife was a good mother and that he felt that the kids should live with her and he would be a visitation-type father, etc. In the meantime, now we get into court, and there was a retired judge at the time who was appointed as a child's representative. I don't even think they called them that in those days. But in any event, she required him to do random drug testing, and it got to be onerous for him. So several months went by, and every one of his tests was clean. So he comes to see me one day, and he's really aggravated, and he tells me that... Um, he wants to, to file a petition to get custody of his children. He, he figures that's the only way he's going to stop them from doing this random drug testing. So I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking about this and that, and I said, I'll tell you what. He says, you really want to do that? You need to get another lawyer. He got incensed. He says, you're my lawyer. What are you talking about? And I said, I've taught my students for years that you do not use custody or any kind of visitation issues as an economic lever, and that's what you're really doing. So we're not going to do that. You get another lawyer who will do it, you know. 
So he thought about it for a week or two, and he says, no, no, I want you to be my lawyer. And every year on the anniversary of his divorce, for four or five years, he would thank me because I stopped him from taking that drastic step. All he would have done was get his kids involved in a custody fight, and he wasn't going to win it anyway. You know. My mentor, when I worked for uh, a family law firm, did have to withdraw from a case because he felt that there were false allegations being made. I think that happens too. Um, you know, people will make an allegation, and and sometimes it seems it's it's an earnest at the time. But as more information comes out or testing comes back, and you find that you know, it's just really not plausible, the allegations that the party is making, then you have to make a decision as the lawyer. And in that case, he withdrew from the case um, because it was just not one one that he wanted to pursue anymore. Um, but just to touch once more on some of these celebrity cases, we've kind of gone to, um, you know, some of the more serious issues, but bringing it back to Johnny Depp and Amber Heard really quick, and then I think we need to wrap this segment up. Um, in that case, you know, I, I, we touched on this a little bit with the domestic violence allegations. Um, you know, Amber Heard filed for a temporary restraining order against Johnny Depp, and she was granted that. Um, you know, she asked for spousal support. A lot of financial information came out about her expenditures, which people in the media were questioning. Um, in general, there was a huge public backlash against this particular woman. And I'm not sure why that was. Perhaps it was because Johnny Depp is such a beloved star. He's Captain Jack Sparrow. Everyone loves him. Um, but, you know, having handled some high profile cases in both of your... A tourist. Oh, <laughs> I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that movie. Um, but, you know, but again, having handled several high profile cases, both of your firms have, um, is this something that you think is that the lawyer can have an impact on? Why do you think this became such a PR nightmare for this woman? Um, how did how did it become the case that Johnny Depp, despite all of these, you know, domestic violence allegations that were out there, how did it become the case that suddenly he was the good guy, she was the bad guy in this situation? Well, I'll give you my opinion. You see, I, I never comment on a pending case. And I'm willing to bet, and I didn't fo I don't follow these celebrity cases, but what I bet happened here was Whoever was representing Amber Heard, she might have started the the first uh, folly, uh, a volley of uh, you know bad publicity, and then he had to counter it. And you talked about a backlash, and so I think that that's what causes all of this to happen, and it it muddies up the case. It probably you know uh, has some impact on the judge or the mediator, whatever the situation is, and I think it's completely wrong to um, talk about a pending case. And I think it's completely wrong for some lawyer to get on TV and talk about a case that he knows nothing about. Now, you know that we're hearing in the political world about the Goldwater Rule that prohibits psychologists and psychiatrists from having an opinion on a public figure who they've never examined. Well, why isn't the same true of a lawyer who is a thousand or two thousand miles away from where a case is pending, and he's given he or she's given an opinion about that case. I don't think it's proper, and that's why this backlash that you talked about. And you you can't tell for one of the things you've got in here, and I think it was in the Pitt case, is that the FBI got involved. How could the FBI get involved I was in a wondering divorce that. case? What yeah. did they have to do with anything there? Right. It that's the thing. I agree with Miles. I mean, look, all of this, you know, anytime this stuff is played out in the media, the response is fast and swift. You have, you know, talking heads across, you know, the country, um, you know, talking about things which they have no idea about. Right. And so then all of a sudden you get allegations that, well, well the FBI is involved. Really? Why would the FBI involved? Every other time there's a child involved, the first thing you hear is DCFS is involved. They may or may not have even been called about the case. You know, the and, and with I think the issue agreed with Miles here on this, Amber Heard, the the problem is when you file a um, petition for an order of protection, right, um, all of this stuff is, is in public record. And so, you know, you have to recognize that there are people who sit at courthouses all day who are combing court files. And so you put certain allegations, it is 
a matter of moments before it's hitting the news cycles. And so a lot of times what you have, you have lawyers who want to try to, quote, jump out ahead of the allegations and, you know, make a statement. The statements are always self-serving. The problem is, as with anything, we are, of course, advocates. So you're advocating on behalf of your client. There are two sides to every story. So you better be ready to talk about both sides. And usually what happens, especially in cases where, you know, you've got one lawyer who's hitting the news cycle first, they're telling their client side of the story. And then when all other information comes comes out, then there's a lot of backpedaling. And then I kid you not, the next thing we hear is, well, the parties have decided now that, you know, they want to handle this as a personal family matter. And we respect, you know, we'd ask that we, you respect their privacy. Yes, I think, you know, as a lawyer when handling um, high profile cases, it's best to not comment. It's best to just represent your client as any other client. Um, because really, if things get out of hand very quickly. And as I said earlier, with social media now, I mean, it's, it is like wildfire, whether that's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it doesn't matter. It's all over the place. And so I think, you know, it's we as lawyers have to be very mindful of, you know, these are people and their lives. And it's not just, you know, for a, a good a good news story. It's probably a good message to take a break on for all those young lawyers who are listening. Don't just be a media rake. No one will like you and you won't serve your client well. <laughs> Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. And we're back. Uh, before we wrap up today, we're going to play a game we like to call Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Uh, for those who haven't heard it before, and for Kimberly and Miles, who are new to the show, Jen and I delve deep into the stacks, spending countless hours at local law libraries, digging up the strangest laws that we could find on the books, finding a few still quivering 1Ls, asking us if the semester was over yet. And we're going to summarize one of those laws, that are, which is real, and another one that we just completely made up on our own. We just invented it. And then we're going to pull each of you and each other to see if we can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Everyone ready? Yeah. All ready. Jen, why don't you lead us off? I don't know about hours in the legal library, though, John. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't I feel like I just skills. did a Google search, but yeah, that, that, that <laughs> in any like case, I'll, I'll start off. Okay, so the first one, there is a California law that says vehicles without drivers may not exceed 60 miles per hour, real or fake. The other is a Wisconsin law that it is illegal to forget your spouse's birthday, real or fake. So Kimberly, what do you think? Those are good. I, you know, I want to go with the uh, this California law as being a, as a real law, and, and it's only because I'm so mesmerized now by these uh, self-driving cars um, that I'm going to say real law on that one. And then uh, where where's the other? What's the other state? Wisconsin. <sighs> that that's tricky. I, I might go with real law on that too because it's Wisconsin. I'm I'm going to say real law for both of. Real life Whoa, of way outside the bounds of the rules. <laughs> oh, am I supposed to take one or the other? You're supposed to pick one or the other. Sorry. Oh, all right. So then, so then Wisconsin, fake law, California, real law. All right. Okay. Okay. Miles, how about you? I'm going to go right to the opposite. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that the California law, as far as I know, uh, the self-driving cars aren't really on the road yet. So if this is a real old law, who? I think it's a fake. And the Wisconsin law, uh, knowing that I've, and, and maybe John will remember this, there, there's been some uh, constitutional issues stemming from laws in Wisconsin. And, and I, I think this is probably a, a legal law, that they, <laughs> that they really had this. You know, as difficult as it is for me 
to say that a weird law from Wisconsin is not true. Um, I'm going to say California because some of those cars actually are out on the roads there being beta tested. So I'm thinking that. All right. Well, John and Kimberly have it. Miles, I'm sorry. The Wisconsin law about forgetting your spouse's birthday is the fake law. And the California law is real. And it does reference self. Well, the the law itself doesn't reference self-driving cars. But that's the reason why this law is on the books out there is because they they want to regulate the self-driving cars. So. Look Although, if Jen's husband is listening, that law is very real in your household, I would imagine. <laughs> the birthday, yes. The laws of the home are different, are different. than the laws on the book. Just to, put, just to put this in, uh, in my recollection correctly, there was a case in, in Wisconsin that ended up in the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was called Zablocki versus Red Hale or Red Hale versus Zablocki. And it was a case right in our field, in, in uh, Kimberly in my field, where somebody who was behind in his child support couldn't get married, and the Supreme Court knocked that law down. So that's why I thought maybe <laughs> this thing about re, you know uh, re, forgetting your wife's birthday could be a real law in Wisconsin. It's, and the funny thing is, the roots of my family are in Wisconsin. It sounds so. totally <laughs> rational in light of that context. Uh, my dad was born and raised in Wisconsin and, uh, and became a lawyer at the University of Wisconsin. You know, since that's a perfect transition to mine, actually, since we're talking about marriage and divorce. First one, in New York, valid grounds for divorce include insanity, still. So if you can prove your spouse is crazy, which is something I think most married couples uh, probably do on a daily basis or try to do, you can get divorced in New York on that basis, still. Second option, in Montana, it is illegal to give a moose a beer. <laughs> It's probably true with all those moose in, in Montana. <laughs> is, that what, is that your choice? Yes. Kimberly? I, I'm going with the moose and the beer. For some reason, I just feel like that that might actually, it's Montana. I, I could see that. So, yes, I'm going with the uh, Montana real law in New York. Wow, that insanity might be, I, I'm going with, with Montana. What do you think, Jen? All right, I'll be the the outsider <laughs> here and say that I think the insanity grounds for divorce is still still a law in the books in New York. And you would be right in saying oh. that. But so we can all go and buy beers for for, <laughs> for mooses. Fun fact: depends which state. That's actually law in Alaska, not oh, Montana. Wow. Kind of a trick question there. You there. Go. But another reason, to, you know, I've always wanted to go to Alaska. I haven't been, but you know, when I saw that law in the books, I wonder what kind of weird parties they have. I want to go <laughs> even more now. <laughs> And that is our episode for today. I want to thank our guests, Miles Bierman and Kimberly Cook, for joining us to give us some insight into the minds of divorce attorneys and to have fun and an educational peek into how they view some of these more salacious celebrity divorces. I also want to thank everyone who makes this machine run, including my co-host today, Jennifer Byrne, and our sound crew, Ricardo Islas and Steve Wyrick. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at CBA at the bar. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for all of us here at the CBA, this is John Amarillo, and we'll see you at the bar. Bye.